Paracas skull, number 44. Discovered in 2012, it has a weight of 2.8 pounds, 25% heavier than the average adult male skull. It has a cranial capacity of 1,500 cubic centimeters, 20% greater than normal. And it is missing a sagittal suture, the connective tissue joint found between the parietal bones in all human skulls. This is just one of hundreds of strange misshapen skulls that have been found on the southern coast of Peru, dating back to 1927. It was at this time that archaeologist Julio Teo first excavated a massive burial complex thought to have been built by the Paracas people who lived in the region from 800 BC to 100 BC. About 5% of the elongated skulls that we find in Paracas are so complex in shape and size that it's hard to believe that they're the result of any form of cranial deformation or head binding. Not only are they elongated vertically, but also the eye sockets are much larger than normal. There are two holes in the back of the skull called foramen, through which blood and nerve flow occurred, and also their jaws were very robust. Everybody, welcome back to the Infinite Fringe right here on Truth Frequency Radio on hackerhameen.podbeam.com. And of course, on the infinitefringe.podbeam.com. Find the Infinite Fringe on iTunes and uh, everywhere else you find fine podcasts, of course. Um, Spotify, not yet. I, I just haven't submitted, but I will at some point soon, I guess, because everybody keeps asking for it. My name is Billy Ray Valentine. Greetings. Thank you for joining me here today. And uh, special episode here today, we have L.A. Marzulli with us. We're going to be talking a lot about, uh, you know, that sort of stuff that all of you like to talk about. You know, <laughs> we have um, L.A. Is, is a renowned filmmaker, man. If you don't know who L.A. is, you will find out today. But I'm pretty sure you guys know the deal. His new series is on, uh, on the trail of the Nephilim, the Mound Builders. It's going to be interesting as hell. He's also known for the Watchers series, which is excellent. I've seen that whole thing. Really, really good stuff. UFO disclosure, the whole deal. L.A. Marzulli, welcome to the Infinite Fringe. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing really good. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to the interview. Hey, thank you for coming on and, and talking about this. You know, and um, I wanted to get you on live, but you know, schedules uh, didn't didn't link up. So we're here. We're gonna do a, a pre-recorded podcast. I'm looking forward to it. This is some incredible work you're getting into here. Right, and, and it's it's getting out into the mainstream now, the mound builders, and by the mainstream, I mean like the fringe mainstream, like right on the cusp of it. There's still tons of people that don't know about this, but it's being pushed out there in large part due to your work. 
mound you, what are these things like i mean we, are they like actual structures that you can get into or they're just mounds what, what are they exactly well it's all over the map let's let's deconstruct it slowly yeah first of all there's an ancient civilization that was here before native americans um and of course even if i say that to mainstream archaeology they'll laugh me out of the room um, all this of course is a managed agenda what i mean by that and I, I know I sound like a conspiracy theorist, but it's true. There is a managed agenda. Um, if you want to be an archaeologist, you will um, basically parrot exactly what they tell you happened. And if you if you hold to any other paradigm, you won't get a job. Uh, and that's just the way it works. You won't get a grant, you won't get a job. So this whole thing is in a closed system, a closed loop as it were. The bottom line is this, and we get into this with the mounds. First of all, there are 10,000 mounds in Ohio alone. We are told by mainstream archeologists that Native Americans took birch bark baskets and primitive hoes and carried one basket of dirt at a time creating these mounds. And so we have Chief Joseph Riverwind who comes in on all the films, who's a, a Tiana war chief, peace chief actually now. And he says, no, Native Americans didn't do this. Sometimes they, they made mounds, but they were much smaller. And many years afterwards, they copied. They used the, the mounds as uh, secondary burials in some cases. But when you look, when you start deconstructing it, and we just took one mound in Poverty Point, Louisiana, and it's estimated that that mound is 390,000 tons of earth. And this is in the, the first episode, episode one, Mysterious Mound Boulders. And so we had a, a flint napper, a guy who makes museum pieces, um, <clears throat> replicas for the museums. We had to make a hoe, primitive hoe, out of flint and deer hide. And the, the hoe performed really well. So we hired a fit labor. This guy goes out uh, near Poverty Point, same kind of soil, and he starts, and we show this on film, he starts digging into the dirt. Well, it takes about 16 minutes for him to dig one basket of earth, small basket, about 30 pounds, and then transport that to a site. And that's not even tamping it down and compacting it. That's just moving the dirt. Well, when you deconstruct it, to do 390,000 tons of earth, it's 28 million single buckets of earth. That's what it is. And again, there are mounds from Ohio all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. There are mathematical mysteries that are embedded in the mounds. And this is the second episode that we talk about. And what we see is advanced trigonometry. We see advanced surveying techniques, advanced alignments. With all due respect to First Nation Native American people, they didn't have any of this stuff. It's not there. I mean, if you, if you knew trigonometry, surely you would, you would have some written record of it somewhere. Because in order to do trig, you need something to write on. And what I mean by this is this is embedded in the mounds themselves. When you go to the Octagon Mound uh, in, in Newark, Ohio, and I've been there about three times, actually a lot more than that, but when you're in there and you're standing in the Octagon, you have no idea what you're looking at. It's only when you're high above it does the Octagon shape come into view. And, and the lines are dead straight. How was this done in the ancient world? Oh, archaeologists said, oh, there are masters of dirt, and they, you know, they knew how to do this, and, and, but they never offer the way it's really done. And, and how, how is it that it's an irregular octagon? It's not, in other words, each side isn't exactly equal. 
That's done deliberately. And and this is this octagon is so large you could fit the base of the Great Pyramid inside the octagon. That's wow. how big this thing is. Wow. That's how big it is. Native Americans did not have trigonometry. This mountain is built before Western the Western world, Europe at the time, so so-called discovered trigonometry. So we have a real problem. The moat, the interior moat of the Great Circle Mount, which is 1,200 feet in diameter, okay, is for all practical purposes dead level. How is that done in the ancient world? How do you create a moat? And, you know, it's one thing, well, you know, I guess they can just, you know, kind of do this really slowly, really. So hunter-gatherers 2,500, 3,000 years ago are, are have the time to build stuff like this? Hunter-gatherers that are, you know, following following herds of deer around or buffalo or what have you, whatever, um, growing primitive crops. And they and they it's it's amazing how they'll they make up names, the Hopewell, the Adena. And these are names made up by archaeologists. When they look at the mounds, they say, well, these were made by the Adena or the Hopewell. They have no idea what these people actually called themselves. None. But they're gonna tell us all about it. They're gonna tell us exactly that they built these things with hose and one basket full of dirt at a time. And and here's here's the other part of the mystery, which I keep throwing out to people, and I can't not get an answer. No one has an answer for me. And it's this. Many of these sites in America are built on an 18 and a half year lunar cycle. So you say, well, you know, what, what? who cares? What's that about? Let's say, Billy Ray, that you and I are the only two people on the planet. God forbid. <laughs> and, and I mean, <laughs> be awfully lonely. But let's say it's just you and me. And we're, we're living in this area and we look at the mound, we look at the moon and we go, you know, the moon seems to change every day. And I go, you know, Billy, you're right. Billy Ray, that the moon, it kind of waxes and wanes. It, it's in a different place and it, it comes up earlier and, and sets up later. And, and we go, okay, well, let's see what the moon does. So the next night we get up and we look at the moon and, and we're looking at it and we make a little drawing and the next day we look at it and lo and behold, it's in a slightly different place and it comes up at a different time and it, and it sets and we're looking at this and we do like a month and you know, we're getting some data. Oh, wait, then a storm comes in which lasts three or four days. There is no moon because of the cloud cover and we can't go out anyway because it's, it's raining. So guess what? How do we know where we are in that 18 and a half year lunar cycle? We don't. We just came into it year four, year eight. We have no idea. Get where I'm going with this? Absolutely. Get where this is absolutely profound and no one's addressing it. We are. Where does this information come from? How does primitive man even know it's an 18 and a half year lunar cycle? They don't unless they have a way of tracking the moon. In modernity, we can do it because we've got telescopes and computers and all this other stuff. But go back 3,000 years ago, the Book of Enoch, which is a pseudepigraphical book found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and attributed to Enoch, who lived in the days of Noah, states on the record that when the fallen angels came down, the watcher fallen angels came down, they gave knowledge to mankind. One of those, one of the, um, the facets of that knowledge was the idea of procession of the planets, of the moon. This knowledge was 
given to us. And isn't it interesting that these sites, which I believe are Nephilim sites, are built on an 18 and a half year lunar cycle. So it, this is, it's a profound mystery. And we were over in Europe for 24 days shooting over there. When I mean shooting, you know, filming over there. And there's another uh, circle mound, which is so similar to the Great Circle Mound in Newark, Ohio, except it's all the way over in the UK, and it's in Amesbury. And that mound is, that, that moat is much deeper. It goes down well over 30 feet into chalk. And, and here's the deal. Once again, how did they dig the chalk in the ancient world? And, you know, they have no answers because they hold tenaciously to this paradigm that human beings did it. I'm a frank supernaturalist. I believe in the supernatural. I think the supernatural is more real than the world around us. And I think that what we're looking at is the vestiges, the fingerprints of supernatural activity hidden in plain sight in all of these areas. I think we can agree on a lot of that. Um, first of all, I always say that we have no idea what we're doing and we have no idea where we came from. You know, history is like a lot agreed upon, right? That's what they say. And um, we really don't know. You know, and, and, and what I like about what you do and other researchers, they try to get to the bottom of it. And then... Uh, accepted mainstream uh, researchers or, or scientists, they, they just don't want to hear it because their narrative is the true narrative and that's all there is to it. You know, it's not a matter of theory. And then you, you got into conspiracy theory and, 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 you know, now with this whole Epstein thing, even the mainstream have become conspiracy theorists, but it's not, it's not that, that that's a weaponized term. You know that, and I, I know that. You know, it, it's it's uh, obvious that we need to question certain things, right? And uh, we just don't know the age of some of this stuff, or or the or it's uh, it's dated the wrong way, and the history of it is given given to us the wrong way. From what I understand, the Native Americans have admitted that they haven't built these mounds. Isn't that right? Yeah, m many of the tribes have openly admitted that they had nothing to do with it. I mean, we actually quote Chief Wallace of the Shawnee. When, when you go to the Serpent Mound, there's signage which says the Shawnee built the Serpent Mound. But we've got Chief Joseph saying exactly the opposite. No, the, the Shawnee didn't build the Serpent Mound. It was here. We kind of took care of it. We looked after it. After it, we respected it. But in no way did we build a Serpent Mound. So when Chief Joseph comes on the record, he's livid. And you can see the smoke in his eyes. And, and he kind of goes, why is it that um, these people, you know, a bunch of white men get together and, and tell us ex what happened when it didn't happen, when, when the, the chief of the Shawnee is saying exactly the opposite. This is a great injustice. And I certainly agree with Chief Joseph. These people have an agenda and um, they're not, <laughs> they're running with this thing all the way. And the problem is most people don't delve into it enough to even understand it. So when you go to these sites, and again, I mean, this is what I do for a living. I mean, I make films about all this stuff and, and travel all over the place and, and create these films trying to show that there is a hidden history that, that's been deliberately obfuscated from the American people. The people of the world have a right to know that something else is going on here. And, uh, you know, if you say anything like that, you're laughed at. In, in academic circles, no matter how much evidence you show, no matter what what kind of evidence you present, 
it's immediately rejected. I'll just give you an example. In, in Graham Hancock's new book, America Before, he talks about the Clovis debacle. And, and what happened is, is that these, these Clovis first archaeologists and scientists believe that Clovis was first. Clovis was when all these, you know, first humans came to the Americas and, you know, it's about 20,000 years ago, whatever, and they, they made these arrowheads and these are Clovis points and yada, yada, yada. Well, new information shows that, wait a minute, people are over here well in advance of Clovis first. And so the whole thing is collapsing of its own weight. But see, they don't want to do that. Because, wait a minute, you know, it's Clovis first. We, we had it all figured out. Now you're telling us we don't have it figured out. And, and most of these people, look, I, I've engaged these guys at museums. I remember I got in a very heated conversation with this one guy. And no matter what I threw at him, he had answers to. You know, no matter what. It just, you know, and that's, that's the problem. Don't confuse me with the facts. And I finally just said to him, I said, you're a, you're a Darwinist, aren't you? You believe in the Darwinian <laughs> paradigm, don't you? You're an ardent Darwinist. In your view, there is no supernatural. And that made him very uncomfortable because I held his feet to the fire. Yeah. And he basically said, well, I believe in the spiritual. I said, that's not what I'm saying. I'm asking you, do you believe in supernatural events, like things levitating, like angels and demons? And, and of course, he doesn't believe in any of that. And I said, well, that that's the impasse. That's why we can't discuss this stuff. Because... You're looking at the fingerprints of the supernatural, yeah. but because there is no supernatural in your worldview, you have to have a natural explanation, no matter how far-fetched it is. Wow. Uh, so let me put this to you, right? I believe in the supernatural, right? If you want to name it that, I just call it something completely different. Um, just, just to give you, a, 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 I don't know, a setup of, of what I actually believe, boundaries to what I actually believe. I think human beings can walk on water. That's just me. Okay, if you call that supernatural, go right ahead. I think it's a part of the natural process. We just don't know it and we haven't discovered. Well, discovered is a, is a wrong word to use. We just don't know it yet. We haven't refound it yet, in my opinion. So I believe in all the quote unquote supernatural. I believe in things levitating. I believe in all of that. I think it's a part of what God set up for us personally, L.A. Do you see where I'm coming from with that or not? You can feel free to disagree yeah, with well, me, by the way. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I respect your worldview. Mm -hmm. We don't have to agree on our worldviews. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, that's well. we can certainly talk about them. We can talk yeah. and discuss ideas. You know, um, look, there's stuff here that, for instance, some of the dirt in the Great Circle Mound came from over a mile away. So, <laughs> I mean, why would you, and of course you talk to archaeologists, oh, they use dog sleds. Really? Dog sleds to move the dirt? <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's craziness. It's just absolutely crazy. And then, you know, how do they, how do they know, how do they make the moat level? How do they do that? And the only way you can think of is they got to bring water in and dig a part of it and see where water, see how it levels. But do, do you realize what we're talking about here? I mean, I just, let's get 30 archaeologists and give them some stone tools. Okay, guys, show us how you're going to do this. Bring the water in. Show us how you're going to do it. Yeah. Well, it took hundreds of years, L.A., to do these things. Well, that's what they say about Cahokia. That Cahokia took 300 years. Oh, wait, wait, wait. So recently... A while back, anyway, within 20 years, uh, an archaeologist went and looked at um, looked at the seed, the pollen in the dirt, 
And he realized, wait a minute, Cahokia didn't take three years to build. It took less than 20. So now we got a real problem mm -hmm. because that's what archaeologists insist that, well, it's, and, and they'll point to the cathedrals of Europe, which is a whole different deal because you've got a, um, a, a culture which is growing things. You've got an agrarian culture. They're, they're, they're harvesting grain. So they're not they're not hunter gatherers. Yeah, they're harvesting grain. They're planting crops. You don't have that over here. Now in Cahokia, you have you have some of that. They're, they're moving into that. So there's a possibility. But when when you've got these ancient civilizations, like what archaeologists tell us, and remember, there's no refrigeration. This is what people got to wrap their heads around. Everything is dried or smoked. There is no refrigeration. If you got a lousy year, you don't get any crops. There's no way to store stuff per se. You could store some grains, but without refrigeration and without you know real storage areas, it's it's you're living hand to mouth. So how does one get the time to start constructing these mounds? Um, and many of the mounds uh, were found the remains of giants, mm. over eight feet tall, nine feet tall, ten feet tall. And this is a matter of historical records found in the Smithsonian's own own logbooks, as it were, from the Bureau of Ethnicity. So it, it's there. It's in newspaper articles. Heck, the, the nine-footer that I found out on Catalina, um, and that's my research. I mean, other people have taken that picture and ma made it look like it was their own. Yeah. And that's my discovery. No one else's discovery. I was there. I took the photograph of the photograph. I had the photograph analyzed. That's my work. End Pro of story. To that's you, my work. Pro and that's a nine-footer. Go ahead. That's a nine-footer found on Catalina Island. Wow. And, you know, three researchers looked at that skeleton in that picture. It shows Ralph Gooden holding a shovel, and in front of him is a very large skeleton, a very large skull. Uh, in situ, and um, you know it, it's there. When we when I published it in the book, the museum immediately took the picture, blew it up, put it on the wall of the museum, and wrote a hit piece about Ralph Gooden, how he was a little more than a grave robber, yada yada yada. That's what they did. And so when we went back, Richard Shaw and I, we went back and we and we walk in the museum, and there's the picture, but the giant, the skeleton has been redacted it's no longer in the picture hmm. they cropped the picture so we filmed that and that went viral because it was a cover-up yeah so now when you go to the new museum they got the picture that i discovered it's blown up really big on the wall and there's not a mention about giants nothing so in other words my work my discovery which shows a nine footer is swept under the rug they have the picture there but they don't say anything about it. Why is that? Why haven't they done their own research to prove me wrong? You know, yeah. prove my free research is wrong that put the skeleton just under nine feet. Josephus, who's a first century Jewish historian, okay, and, and I quote him in the films that the Nephilim, the bones of the Nephilim were openly on display in Jerusalem at the time of his writing, before the Romans came in in AD 70 and destroyed everything. And, he's, and he says that the bones of these, of, these, of these entities, men, he calls them men, he doesn't want else to call them, were so <laughs> unlike any other human beings. Their countenances were so different 
and their voices terrible to the hearing. Wow. Now, you know, and the skeletons were openly on display. That's Josephus. And then the biblical accounts talk about the giants. The, the Nephilim are the spawn, the offspring of the fallen angels and the women of earth, creating a hybrid being. Yeah. And it's interesting that this is this is happening in modernity with the so-called breeding program. I interviewed um, the creators of, uh, um, <clears throat> what the heck was it called? Extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I saw that interview. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, Extraordinary, the seeding. And, you know, they know that there's a breeding program going on. We all do. Those of us who travel in this stuff know that there's a breeding program going on. And so we talk about it in, in, in that interview. What, what I didn't bring into that interview was that all this has been prophesied thousands of years ago. Um, in the book of Daniel, which, you know, is, is in the Christian Bible, you know, Jewish Christian Bible. It's right, right there in the Tanakh, the Old Testament. It says, their seed will mingle with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave to them. And he's talking about the latter days, the end times. Their seed, well, who's the they? Shall mingle with the seed of men. Well, it can't be men's seed will mingle with the seed of men. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so who is who is Daniel talking about? What seed are we talking about? And then you go back to Genesis 3.15, where I believe it's Jesus, Adam and Eve, and, and the dragon in the garden. And that's not mythos. That's real. Mm. And And... Mm. And Jesus makes a pronunciation. He says, pointing to the dragon, the serpent, your offspring, your seed, your offspring will be at enmity at war with the offspring, the seed of the woman. He, the one who will eventually come from the woman's uh, seed, will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. That sets up the rest of the biblical prophetic narrative. Thousands of years later, Jesus is nailed to the cross. That's the bruising of his heel. But by that, and by his shed blood, he destroys the kingdom of the dragon yeah. and, and sets the captives free, which has been going on for thousands of years now. The problem is it's been it's been twisted and obfuscated. And and some of exact some of what we see is so far away from the original that it's it's hard to figure out or it's hard to ascertain or it's hard to relate that we're talking about the same stuff here. But we are. So it's interesting how. The, Daniel writes thousands of years before the modern day abduction phenomenon that their seed will mingle with the seed of men. The Nephilim are on the earth. Native American tribes talk about six fingered, red haired giants that were cannibalistic. They would come in, rip the heads off the braves, drink the blood like a soda, and then throw the body down and go on to the next one. Yuck. They would have these large lances. And we, we, we've talked about this, and I'll bring it up again later. Um, in another film, they would come in with these lances and they they would those lances would spear. They would go through three different people. Now, I'm not making this stuff up. That's all Native American oral tradition, but it's all discounted. And anthropologists and archaeologists, well, that's just their mythos. That's just they're just telling stories. There really were no giants. So what do you do with that? You tell me. I want you to get into the serpent mound a bit because I think I think it um it correlates with some of the things you just said. Um, from listening to your research and, and your work, right there, there's a, a the serpent mound is a serpent, right, and you can only see it from from the sky, ironically, and it's eating an egg, right, and that has a lot to do with what you were saying just now. Uh, tell us what the serpent mound is, and then link it back. Go ahead. The serpent mound is the largest serpent effigy in the world on this planet. 
And when you're there, and I've been here three different times, it's first of all, it's a highly charged site. In episode three, the Mayan elders go there. Gee, what are the Mayan elders doing up here at the Serpent Mound? Hello. And I'll address that in just a little bit. Yeah. But it's, it's an undulating serpent, and the undulations of the serpent's uh, body point to the solstices and the equinoxes. How the heck could they know that? But when you're down looking at the serpent mound, you go, well, what am I looking at? I don't even know what I'm looking at. There used to be an altar and a pillar in the serpent's mouth. And the serpent is in the act of what I believe swallowing an egg, not giving birth to an egg, swallowing an egg. And they built a two and a half story or a two story lookout tower, which you can climb up and you get kind of a, an idea of what you're looking at, but you really don't know. The only way you can appreciate the serpent mound is from the air. And as we say in the film, who is the prince of the power of the air? And that title is reserved for none other than the dragon, i.e. Satan himself. And so why is it, and this was a new interpretation that came from an amateur archaeologist who was at one of our conferences, the guy's name was Mark Hersman, and Mark was talking about, he had just come from the Serpent Mound, and he was listening to Gary Stearman's discussion on Genesis 3.15. It's all about the seed. And Gary was talking about what I just stated earlier, a little earlier, about the seed of the serpent being at war at enmity with the seed of the woman. And, and Hurstman came up to me at the end of that lecture and said, L.A., L.A., the serpent mound, I think the serpent is in the act of eating, swallowing the egg. Hmm. See, New Agers go, oh, the serpent is, denotes wisdom and he's giving wisdom to the world. Well, that's just utter nonsense in my opinion, absolute nonsense. What we're looking at is the serpent is in the act of swallowing the egg. And if that's true, basically it's stating that, wait a minute, I'm going to destroy the offspring of the woman. It won't happen. That's what that. That's why that thing is so poignant. And when you discover that and you go up and you look at it, you go, oh, my gosh, if it's true, it screams Nephilim. And here's the deal. The Mayan elders go there in 2011 with the 13 crystal skulls. And they're there because they know it's a charged site. They know it's Kundalini serpent power. That's why they're there. And they do a ritual there, which we show in episode three. You just hear a little bit of a chanting. It makes my hair and my on, on the back of my neck stand up because wow. they're opening up a gateway. They're opening a gateway. They're opening a portal. These are shamans. And, and in many in many instances, in order to become a shaman, you have to kill a family member. Ooh. That's how you become a shaman. That's the that's your rite of passage. You kill a family member, and then you get the power. But it comes with a price, your soul. Oh, well, that doesn't sound good. Like, <laughs> I, I don't think that's uh, worth, um, you know, being no. a shaman. I mean, that, that, is, that doesn't sound good to me, L.A. I mean, give me your, your thoughts on that. That's not... Good, is it? <laughs> you shouldn't be doing no, that, right? It's, it's, it's absolutely horrible. Okay, good. But remember, the, the serpent, the serpent who the shaman serves, um, demands blood. Why do you think the, you know, the um, the Aztecs and the Inca are down there slaughtering 50,000 people with Chichen Itza, ripping their hearts out with obsidian knives? Who gets up on a Monday morning and decides, well, we're, we're going to do this. We're going to get these people, and we're going to cut their hearts out, and we're going to hold the beating heart up. And the blood will be every place, and we have to do this so the crops will grow. Are you kidding me? Are you out of your mind? Where does this come from? And where does it, at Chichen Itza, who designs this pyramid 
so that at the equinoxes, once again, here we go, you know, the, the, the solstice, the equinoxes, the procession, the 18 and a half year lunar cycle, who designs this thing? So at the equinoxes, it appears that the serpent is slithering down descending, the yeah. side of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. How the heck does that work? Yeah. You know, I mean, how many, and, and there's not models you know, they've never found the model. Well, we better make a, a scale model of this thing to see if it works. Okay, Bob, that sounds really good. Where is it? They don't, they don't know. There, there isn't any that, that, I've, that I've heard about. This thing just, boom, it just rises out of it. In other words, this is Nephilim architecture, fallen angel technology, in my opinion. It was given to them. It was given to them. All these sites, Billy Ray, all these sites are highly charged sites, all of them. And you just don't walk into them. Yeah. You got to pray up before and afterwards because there's stuff that's still lingering. And some of the sites have been charged by the Mayan elders so that uh, it's it's dangerous even even to go into them unless, you know, unless you're called to do that. Henry Groover, who we show in episode three, used to go out to the mounds and he spent a lot of time uh, at these sites. Groover is a very odd, odd duck in the sense that. He was called to travel to these ancient temples, ancient earthworks, ancient areas, and rededicate the land to the Lord. Now, that can sound kind of woo to some people, but that's what he was called to do. And so he would do that. So he was, and we show us in the film, um, and Wesley Sanziorgi did a brilliant job of bringing the audio to life, because all we have is the audio clip. And thanks to Steve Quayle, he allowed us to use that because it was on Steve Quayle's show. And um, so Gruber, Henry Gruber is talking about that he saw the sign for the serpent mound, and he said, well, I'm going to go out and, and shut that gateway. So Henry goes out, and he, it's snowing. There's about four to six inches of snow on the ground, and he kind of slips and slides his way up to the serpent head, and he gets up there, and he, and he does his thing. He prays and closes the gate and renounces the bloodshed that's been there, because all these sites are sacrificial. They've sacrificed human beings. And as he's walking back to the parking lot, in his own words, he's hit like viscerally in his solar plexus, like like a cosmic punch in the gut, as it were. And he drops to the ground and his knees come up to his chest and he can't move. He's paralyzed. He cannot bring his knees down. He can't crawl. He can't do anything. And he's praying, trying to figure out what the heck, why is this going on? And it's snowing. And he realizes that they're going to find him frozen to death the next morning. And so he starts to plead with the Lord. It's like, why are you allowing this? And the Lord finally speaks to him and says, Henry, I didn't call you in here. I, di I didn't tell you to do this. I didn't, I didn't call you in here. And I'll release you from this. But, you know, you, you just can't go to these places unless I call you to them. And you, you won't come back here until you have fasted and prayed, and I'll tell you when. And so... Um, he released him and Henry got in the van and he learned a powerful lesson. A woman uh, that when I went there for the very first time, her name was Dolly and she's passed away a number of years ago. Wonderful woman, incredible woman. God bless. So you go back into the, into the seventies where the new age was, was really starting to rise to the top and, and you know, everything was new age and Eastern mysticism and all this nonsense. And the Lord wakes her up. And says, I want you to go to the Serpent Mound and pray. And she had never been there. She didn't even know what the Serpent Mound was. So, I mean, this is the way, and I know it can sound really woo-woo, but this is the way God works. And this should be the normal life 
in the life of a Christian. I mean, this is, you know, this is the way God works. So Dolly goes and does some research and she drives down there at the appointed day and there's all these new agers there. It's this huge new age festival at the Serpent Mound. And the Lord just tells her, just, just wait here. She's by the head. And uh, all of a sudden, one of, the, one of the leaders calls everybody up. There's a couple hundred people there. Calls everybody up to the tail. And so all, the whole crowd moves up to the tail. So now she's alone by the head of the serpent. And the Lord says, go up on the head and I'll tell you what to pray. And Dolly does that. She's obedient. She goes up. She prays. And the Lord says, good, your job is done. Leave. And then years later, Henry Groover came. So it's uh, all these sites are charged. We've had experiences there that we show in the film with the Nork Paranormal Group, which I had no idea what these guys actually did or their machines. And I'll just briefly, we were at a place called Geller Hill. Geller Hill is in Nork. It's the highest place in, in the county. It's connected um, to these other sites, the Octagon Mound and the Great Circle Mound. And when you connect the sites, you wind up with a perfect isosceles triangle. And these sites are about 1.7 miles away from each other. So once again, we see advanced surveying techniques and how would you do this and what's the point of it? And Fritz Zimmerman, who's, who's in all the films, um, believes, as I do, that these are Nephilim sites, specifically Geller Hill might have, might have been a Nephilim burial ground at one point. So we go to Geller Hill to film, and we're there with the North Paranormal Group. Fritz invited, and they wanted to come along. They got wind that Fritz, was, Fritz and I would be filming, and they wanted to just come with us and check out the mounds. So I have no idea what these guys do. I don't watch paranormal stuff on TV. I mean, you know, ghost hunters and stuff. To me, it's like you're, you're messing with fire. So I don't watch stuff like that or look at it. Yeah. And they're there with us. And it starts to rain. It's a light drizzle. I can't fly the drone. We can't film. So right next to Geller Hill, there's this manicured forest with a, with a canopy over above it. So when we get in there, the rain stops. So we pull out the cameras and we start filming. Well, one of the people from a North Paranormal group had this little machine. It's called the Nautilus. I'd never seen one before. I have no idea what it does. So she turns it on. Her name is Raylan Galen. And Raylan turns the machine on and uh, waits about a minute or two. And all of a sudden, the machine, because it speaks, there's 5,000 words in this ovulus that are embedded. And what the way it allegedly works is it allows an entity to interface with the electronics and, and basically give a message. Basically, it's high-tech necromancy. It's like a fancy Ouija board. But I didn't know this at the time. Yeah. I didn't know. So she turns it on, and, and the word comes up, evil. And I go, wow, that's kind of, that's, that's weird. That's interesting. You know, wow. And we walk into the forest down about 50 feet, and it comes with another word, witch. And at this point, and this is all on film, and I go, okay, I know what this is. I can't do this. So on film, I'm, I start to pray. And I'm not yelling and screaming and running around like you see on TV. That's not necessary. And I just go, um, we, we cancel your assignment. You are no longer allowed to access this machine in any way. We, we cancel your assignment in this area. We rebuke you in the name of the Lord. And we, we, we ask that the Lord would move you away from this into, you know, that type of a prayer. And uh, so I have her turn off the machine, which she does. And then she turns it back on about 30 seconds later. And we wait 
a short period of time and the word holy comes up on the machine. Her face lights up in the film. Her jaw drops. She's absolutely blown away, astounded by what she's seeing. She's never seen that before. And later on, when we regroup, um, it was bizarre. The, the North Carolina group had never seen anything like this. So they shoot me out of the area and, and try to see if they could get something to manifest. Nothing would manifest for them. So in no way am I, um, you know, um, uh, saying that people should go out and get a novel. So I'm saying exactly the opposite. We shouldn't be playing with this stuff. And I warned the North, North Paranormal Group. I said, you guys, you don't know what you're dealing with here. This stuff is real. And you're opening up gateways that might follow you home. And you don't want to be followed home by these guys. Yeah. This is the dark side. Uh, but, you know, they got to believe what they want to believe and, and do what they got to do. But um, that was a warning. And in no way are we, uh, you know, promulgating or promoting the use of any of these obeluses or, you know, SLL cameras or any of this stuff. You're you're playing with fire when, when, when you do that. We're actually told the opposite not to not to engage. So I when I once I found out what the thing did, I immediately shut it down and, and the Lord showed up. And, and all this is on film which is incredible. There's also a pastor, uh, Tom Olson, who used to have a Lutheran pastor, a Lutheran church in, in Newark, Ohio. And that's how they say it in Newark, Ohio. And uh, um, he comes on the record when he was applying for the job. One of the questions was, well, do you do, are you, do you know how to do deliverance exorcisms? And Tom said, no. Well, they hired him anyway. And a short time later, he started receiving his first calls. The parishioners, many of them, have built on on the mounds next to a mound. All sorts of wacky paranormal stuff's going on. Ghost wolves appear outside the house. Entire tribes of what look like Native Americans appear and disappear, like an, like an encampment. Appear and then disappear. Crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. In one house, um, the people right on, right on a mound, the house was on a mound. And uh, they would open the door to the crawl space, and it would be a crawl space. Other times they would open the door to the crawl space, and it would be a bottomless pit that they would throw things down and it would never hear it hit the bottom. How's that possible? When Tom Olson went to one house because they were having all sorts of demonic activity, and make no mistake, this is demonic activity, he walked in and the table was levitating off the ground. So that's the type of stuff. That's in episode three, Secrets of the Supernatural, Voices from the Other Side. I think it's a must-watch. Um, that's what Steve Quayle. Sounds like a must-watch. I mean, people who are at all interested in this stuff want to know what's really going on. Check out the Mound Builders series. Episode three will blow your mind. Wow, wow. If, if that isn't uh, a, a case to go watch that ASAP, I don't know what is. Okay. <laughs> You know, if you're listening to the Infinite Fringe anyway, right, you, you have to go watch stuff like this. Got a couple of more things for you, L.A., before we get out of here. Um, you spoke about Chichen Itza. I've been there, right? Uh, and uh, the, okay. the, the serpent, right, descending uh, down the side of the pyramid, right? Uh, Quetzalcoatl, supposedly, feathered serpent, who was supposed to have red hair also, um, which you mentioned. Right. Um, there's a pyramid within a pyramid within a pyramid in that thing. It's, it's, it's an incredible sight, right? And there's supposed to be water in there, too. There's probably a, a cenote right under it, right? That's what they call the, the, right. wa the holy right. water um, place. Um, they, they have these things called cenotes for anybody that doesn't know that it's holy water. 
under there where they did all types of, uh, you know, rituals and it was a passage to the underworld, a bunch of other stuff. Um, now, have you ever been to Chichen Itza? I was supposed to go to Chichen Itza in 2012. Okay. I was supposed to be there. We had paid for our tickets. We had raised the money to go. Uh, Richard Shaw, I'm sorry, um, Russ Dizdar, yeah. Richard Grund, and a ex-Navy SEAL guy and myself were all supposed to go together because I was, I was invited. Yeah. So I was one of the speakers. And we were all set to go. Airplane tickets were bought. And you can't, re you know, they won't refund your money. Huh. And uh, we were supposed to go. At the last minute, my daughter, Sarah, calls me up. This is like on a Saturday. And we're supposed to leave on the following Thursday. So we're done. She calls up and goes, Dad, I had a really bad dream. You know, I don't think you're supposed to go to Chichen Itza. And I said, well, Sarah, um, you know, we're going. We've got to go. This is a true story. So um, I'm, I, 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 I just say, well, I'll pray about it. And so I hung up with her. My wife and I are going out to dinner. We're in the car. Uh, and she heard the phone call because it was on speaker. And I said, well, let's pray. And I just said something. Father, if, if Sarah's dream is true in any way, I pray that you would give us uh, a word of confirmation. Okay? And less than 30 seconds later, the Lord speaks to me very, very clear and says, don't go. And I just, and, and with that, uh, he gave me a scripture. And I'm just sitting there going like, oh my gosh, I just got confirmation. We're not supposed to go. And so, and I'm just, I'm how am I going to tell the other guys? You know, this is, this is crazy. And my wife received confirmation over dinner. She's about to take a bite of sushi and she looks at me and she goes, oh my gosh, the Lord just told me and confirmed what you got. You're not supposed to go. So I call up Russ Dizdar. It's a true story, guys. I call up Russ Dizdar. I get his answering machine and I go, Russ, it's LA. Um, I don't know how to tell you this, but I don't think we're supposed to go to Chichen Itza. My daughter had a dream. I've had confirmation. Uh, my wife's had confirmation. We're not supposed to go, so I'm not going. Why this is going on? Why I'm talking on the machine, right? Russ is up in his up in his up in his upper room, as it were, and he's praying, and he's pacing the floor, and he's been sort of upset for a week because the Lord has been telling him for a week not to go to Chichen Itza. He's been over in France, and he's and he's like he's really ticked off, and he's like pacing the floor, and you know, in 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 wrestling with this because. How's he going to tell the guys that we're not that he's not going right? He doesn't know that I what I've been told, nothing like this. So he's up there and he finally gives it over and goes, "Okay, I'm not going." And you know, peace returns. And uh, he comes down and the you know his answering machine's on and he he opens it up and it's me. And and he calls me instantly and he goes, "You're not going to believe this, but this is exactly what the Lord told me." The next morning, Richard Grun wakes up, and he's wrestling with this thing. And he doesn't want to go, and he doesn't know why. Wow. He, he's, he's so, he just does not want to go. And he's freaked out. And he calls me up, <laughs> and I tell him what's going on. True story. I believe True story. So I think if we had gone, we, one of us would have been killed oh. as a sacrifice. Oh, man. Don't say that, Ali. Come on. No. Not, no, I mean, God willing, no, that, that, that wouldn't have happened. Um, 
Listen, I, I hope one day you guys make your way down there. It's a magnificent, magnificent sight, right, to, to, to see, right? And the, the reason I bring this up is because, unless I'm misunderstanding this, and please correct me, right? You think that this was all built by the Nephilim or by Nephilim knowledge? Um, it, it's, it's either, it's, it's not either or, it's both and. It's both, okay. uh, They could have humans next to them, but Chichen Itza, in my opinion, is a highly charged fallen, fallen angelic Nephilim site mm. all day long. You feel the all same way long. about, uh, about uh, Egypt and the Great Pyramids over there? Great Pyramid is incredibly enigmatic, but yeah, the technology over there is once again fallen angel technology. I think the pyramid is pre-flood. I think the Sphinx is pre-flood. I agree with you. Uh, these, yeah, these were edifices that were destroyed in the flood. Um, the Great Pyramid is, I, I think, the most profound, hands down, the most profound structure on the planet. I agree and with Egyptians you. And Egyptians, Egyptians had nothing to do with it. <laughs> okay, I, I agree with you about the pre-flood part. Absolutely, one hundred. And and you know, there's a lot to be said for that. Um, so just just to be clear, right, with the Nephilim, before I get up out of here, so we have this race that isn't supposed to exist that actually does, right? And uh, they're savages, right? For you know, for, as far as I can tell, right, just ripping people apart and drinking them. You know, to the That's point it. that to the point that Native Americans had to fight them, right? In, in in Native American lore, Native American history, they got together and and they had some type of a war with with the giants. If if I'm wrong, please correct me, right? Um, no, they did. They that, did exactly. They did. Yeah. So um, these are the same Nephilim that built these structures, is what you're telling me. So that they're, I mean, they can be savages, but yet have trigonometry. Well, the trigonometry is coming from the fallen angels, yeah. I think. And again, this is conjecture. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. But the, the Nephilim are, are doing the heavy lifting on, on, on some aspects. But this technology mm. comes from, I get in it. my opinion, yeah. fallen angel technology. That's where I it's from. It so the fallen angels use the Nephilim to do what they want to do. Right. I right. get it now. I get it now. It makes sense to me at this point. One other thing. I want you to get into the elongated skulls and then we're out. Because um, I know you did a lot of research on this, and, and uh, it's fascinating to me because I don't, I don't know of anyone else that has done what you've done. I'm not saying it hasn't been done, but I don't know of anyone else. Can you give us well, a little this, bit about these elongated yeah, skulls? This, yeah, with the whole thing with the elongated skulls, um, we, this was given to me. Someone gave me a video, and it showed Brian Forrester down in Paracas, the old Paracas History Museum, mm. handling these elongated skulls. And we flew down there. Uh, with our first team uh, and examined it, and eventually we did DNA. Now, the problem is, is that this has never really been told the way it should be. So this is episode four of Amitrail of a Nephilim. It basically shows from our very first um, dealings with this to what we think they are, to the DNA evidence that we actually, our team was the team that got the DNA evidence. Nobody else did. Now, Brian... Uh, According to what I know, Brian got a sample and and got some other team and they they do have um, DNA, but I'm not sure what it is. I, I don't have that information. Um, I raised I raised the money and I want to thank our sponsors for for giving us a lot of money because to bring a team down there is 20 grand. Just you know, and we've been down there multiple times um, and we spent upwards of two hundred thousand dollars over a period of years. To get the results 
We uh, hired three different labs. We've got all sorts of results. Academia refuses to look at the results. They just say, oh, it's contaminated, it's contaminated. Mm. But the work Rick Woodward, our anthropologist, points out, which is then backed up by Dr. Malcolm Alde on our team and Dr. Malcolm Warren on our team, uh, who point out that there are morphological structural differences in these skulls. This is episode four. I'm in the process. I'm in post-production now. We'll show um, all this, why why it is what it is. And uh, I'm, I'm again, I'm in post-production. I'm excited about this because awesome. there's a lot of great footage where we're down there uh, handling these elongated skulls. And, and, you know, this is 2013, so it's six years later, and we want to set the record straight because our team collected 58 samples. Out of the 58 samples, 28 of them sequenced. We are, as far as I know, the only team who have ever exclusively looked at the Paraka skulls. Mm. And we do not think they are the result of cranial deformation or cradle headboarding. These are genetic anomalies. They may, in fact, be remnants of the Nephilim known as the Anakim. We don't know that for sure. Mm. We can't say that. But that's our that's that's my hypothesis, yeah. that what we might be looking at is a Nephilim tribe. Interestingly enough, the, the Anakim translates long necks. Huh. And we believe, yeah, yeah, we believe that because of the position of the foramen magnum, the brain hole being so far to the posterior of the skull, that in order to balance the skull, you would have to have a longer neck. That's conjecture, but it's based on the morphological um, oddities of these particular skulls. Absolutely fascinating, L.A. Thank you very much for coming on the Infinite Fringe. Thanks, I want Billy you, Ray. I, Let's I want do you it again. Tell, uh, absolutely, brother. We'll, we'll, I'm going <laughs> to plow through this stuff. <laughs> I'm telling you. Um, I want you to tell everybody where they can find you and where they can buy your work. Come on. Ellie, you there? LA. I, I, I hit the mute button by oh. mistake. Sorry. You know, <laughs> okay. these, these interviews are great, but I've, I've just scratched the surface. And when you watch the DVDs, you do two things. Yeah. You educate yourself on really what's going on. And you help keep us do what we're doing. And we thank you in advance. Go to lamarzuli.net, lamarzuli.net, www.lamarzuli.net. Check it out. The, the book, On the Trail of a Nephilim, is over 600 pages, wow. 350 full-color photos, all down in Peru and elsewhere. That'll blow your mind. It, it may be the definitive book on the subject. So, And it's an 8.5 by 11 book. High gloss paper. It's it's not it's not a cheap throwaway thing. So over six hundred pages. So lots to look at, lots to learn. Go to lamarzuli.net, everybody. Tons of stuff, tons of stuff there for you to get into. I mean, and when I'm saying tons, I'm I'm not kidding. Tons of stuff. La, hold on. Let me just close the show out. This is the Infinite Fringe. My name is Billy Ray Valentine. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. I appreciate each and every last one of you. God bless you. All right, email me at the infinite fringe at um, gmail.com. I wish we could <laughs> email me there, okay? Or follow me on Twitter at Oban. When you know me, you know the deal, everybody. Take it easy now, all right? I'll see you guys soon. Bye bye.